Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. The afternoon portion of Middays is live from the Element Well Studios. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And we welcome to Middays now our good friend Luke Johnson, the host of Super Talk Eagle Hour. The USM Golden Eagles, I believe they get underway tomorrow, right, in the Sun Belt Conference Tournament. Is that right, Luke? Welcome to the program. Thanks, Gerard. Good to be back. I didn't know if you were going to do that segue from that retirement read straight into Scott Berry or not. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, good right. to be with you. <laughs> Golden Eagles will play tomorrow. Yeah, they'll play at 1230. Um, the way the Sunbelt Conference works, there's two play-in single elimination games today. And uh, Coastal Carolina, the one seed, the Golden Eagles with the two seed, uh, they, they don't know who they're playing yet. So uh, right. between James Madison and Old Dominion and then uh, between the two Georgia schools, Georgia Southern and Georgia State, Whichever is the higher seed uh, that wins today, Golden Eagles will get those uh, get that team tomorrow at twelve thirty, and then Coastal Carolina will get the lower seed tomorrow at four. Pretty good shape when you get that bye in the first round, though, isn't it? It is, um, and obviously uh, teams that finish lower in the in the, the conference, uh, and you know, there's there's uh, what eight or uh, six teams um, that that technically get that buy, but in a lot of uh, tournaments, uh, that single elimination they view it more as like a uh, you know like a. Um, a play-in game, you know. Yeah. So in in reality, it's more like an eight-team uh, eight-team tournament. Southern Miss really uh, got a great draw. Um, they're opposite Coastal, Texas State, and Louisiana. They took two out of three, and so they're on the same side as Troy and Appalachian State. Uh, Golden Eagles took two or three from Troy earlier this year and uh, didn't play Appalachian State. Yeah. All right, the great Scott Berry, as you just mentioned. Uh, announced his retirement uh, not so long ago. He is uh, he's a legend uh, at Southern Miss for sure, and he's a legend in the state of Mississippi and in the college baseball world. He really is. You look at um, just most of his career spent in the state of Mississippi, and then he coached under um, under Coach Palmer, and it, it just is a real you know transition of uh, solidity. I mean, you look back at what Pete Taylor did. Um, Corky was under him, and yeah. then, um, and then uh, with and Coach Denson was under him too, and then Coach Palmer was under Coach Denson, Coach Barry under Coach Palmer, yeah. and now um, Ostrander has been under under Barry. And so Scott said yesterday um, in an interview, when you do that, you're able to keep a culture going. You're able yeah. to keep expectations. Sure. And because Oz has been on the staff, um, you know, six years, um, players know what they're getting. 
and recruits know what they're getting, and so you're able just to continue without any hiccups. So, Luke, do you see that in, in Scott? I mean, do you see uh, much of Corky's philosophy of, of coaching, teaching the game, and, and managing, uh, honestly, uh, who are usually volatile D1 college baseball players? That's, that's no easy task. You, you played at that level. Uh, it's, it's part of it. Do you see some of Corky in Scott? It's kind of impossible, yeah, not to. Yeah. Um, Corky and, and Hill, and I didn't ever know Coach Taylor, um, but heard the stories. They were all different, but in the same ways, uh, there, there was a whole lot of carryover. And that's just because when you get Scott, you get Corky, Hill, and Pete Taylor. Yeah. Um, simply because it's just a you know a line of succession. Um, it, but, you know, the, the personalities are, are different. Uh, but the one thing about Scott Berry um, is when people – uh, think about him. And one thing you never hear, he's at 519 wins right wow. now. You never hear that number thrown out first. You never hear all-time um, huh. you know, winning as coach at Southern Miss. You never hear six regional uh, or you know, whatever regionals in a row it is. You don't hear the longest 40-win streak, 40-game you know, win streak uh, in the country. You always hear about Scott the person. Sure. And you always hear that, that first and foremost. And I told him this past week, and I've said it on the Eagle Hour, I got to know him as a student athlete playing football at Southern Miss. And then I got to know him as a fan. And then, you know, um, co-hosting the Eagle Hour, I got to know him from that perspective. And I've never known Scott to, to be anything other than, you know, when I met him as a freshman or a sophomore at Southern Miss. He's always been, you know, that guy. I'll tell you a quick story that just epitomizes. He would get embarrassed if you heard me saying this, but oh well, here we go. So uh, Friday, bef- you know, they're going to honor him uh, that night. And uh, right outside the Pete, uh, on the inside it's a concession stand, but on the outside it's a ticket booth. And on the side of the ticket booth there's a, a storage room. So I went by to see him. It was like 2.30, and he went in his office. So I was walking up to the Pete. And Scott emerges from, like, this closet, and he's sweating down. And I was like, Coach, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I was up in the attic looking for some more 40 jerseys and uh, for, for my family to wear tonight. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a manager or a student, you know, out there doing that. The, the head baseball coach is going to be honored in a few hours. And one of the jerseys that he had, Gerard, was his 2009 College World Series jersey. It's just been sitting in an attic That's somewhere. Awesome. And I was like... Brother needs to be at your house, but I mean that epitomizes. Yeah. He's he's always sees people um, as as equal. He's never been one um, to look down on anyone at all. In a lot of ways, um, when you're around him, you feel highly valued because you feel like he cares about you. You know, I know you played uh, football, and uh, I'm an old baseball guy. Unfortunately, I got hurt and had to cut my career short, but was was headed to play. But you, you've been around the sport, both sports a lot, all sports. Managing baseball players is a little different than managing football players. You agree with that? It's it's different. It's yeah, a different I mean, coaching approach. It is because everything leads up to one game, and you've only got you know now you've got twelve of them. We only had eleven, you know, when I played. If you had twelve, you got to a bowl. But yeah, you know, you got to turn around sometimes in two hours or forty five minutes on a doubleheader game or the next day, and and uh, you know, and football coaches, you they want you to sit in it for a little bit. Yeah, if you if you yeah. mess up. Yeah, and uh, they want you to enjoy it a little bit if you do success. Baseball, I mean, it's just, just the opposite. Move on. Yeah, got to flush exactly it. Right. You got, I used to teach kids all the time. You got to flush it. You cannot because you know it happens during the game. 
You failed during the game. You got to go up to the plate again after striking out the last time. You got to toe the rubber after giving up a dinger or something. And you got to flush it. And if you can't, you can't play the game. You just simply can't. And coaches, I've always thought, the most successful in baseball, they stay out of the players' heads. If they're in the players' heads and they dwell on that, they simply can't perform. And, and I think your point about just the personality of Coach Barry, I would argue that's why he's been successful. And, I mean, you'll see him. Uh, he, he motivates his players. I mean, there have been times he chews on them. At the same time, I mean, uh, I've always said this, successful coaches um, can, can and, you know, motivate their players to motivate each other. Yeah. And there's been some times where, you know, Scott and other guys, they just stay out of the way and, and let the right. guys take care yeah. of it. And, uh, and so he's, he's shown a balance um, um, to do both for sure. All right. What's your outlook for uh, Southern Miss in the tournament? Well, I mean, there's, there's pressure in the sense um, that if they want to host, they need to win it. Yeah. If, and, and I would say get back into the hosting conversation, which is really crazy. The schedule this year uh, going in was uh, super, super tough, and you thought the strength of schedule would be a little higher. Some of the teams that they thought would be really good uh, weren't as good this year. And so Eagles are at 28 RPI right now, even with 37 wins. So if they were to win four games, they would get to 41. Um, and get back in the hosting conversation, you know. But for them, uh, make it to the semifinals. Uh, if they don't host, um, you know, I could see them. Um, uh, different outlets have them going to Baton Rouge, Nashville. If, if Alabama gets a bid, going to Tuscaloosa. Uh, but I mean, for for them, because they didn't want to, uh, because they didn't win the regular season, and uh, Coastal Carolina did, they can still come away with a tourney, tournament championship. And, you know, some of these guys that are probably playing for the last time, like Tanner Hall and other guys that may get drafted, like Justin Storm, along with Christopher Sargent and Danny Lynch and, and, and uh, Dustin Dickerson. And uh, but they've got an opportunity to still have a championship. And so uh, it'll be, be interesting to see, um, you know, how the pitching goes. Uh, I fully expect Tanner Hall to throw a game one yeah. just to eat up innings and, and to take care of that and to save the bullpen for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, I, I suspect that'd be the case as well. As well. And, uh, and where are they playing the tournament? It's in Montgomery, right? So it's in Montgomery. It's yeah. at the Montgomery Biscuit State yeah. downtown. Um, Bob's headed over today. I'll be headed out in the morning. We're actually uh, thankful for, for the company allowing us. We'll be on site doing two shows uh, tomorrow and Thursday live from the Sunbelt Tournament. And that's a great venue. I've been there. The Biscuits uh, Stadium is pretty cool there at Montgomery. And, you know, something else so before we go here, uh, Luke, when you, when you mention these names that maybe aren't household names to a lot of Mississippians, Appalachian State, for example, playing baseball, these guys are all dead gum good, aren't they? I mean, it's amazing in the game of baseball. You can take anybody's Friday night starter, and they can compete with anybody else's Friday night starter in the country, just about. Sunbelt got more uh, invites last year to the tournament than Conference USA did, and all year long they've been a, a top five RPI conference, the Sunbelt has. So Southern Miss coming in along with Old Dominion and some of the other schools, it's a top-notch conference, and uh, Coastal Carolina's already going to host. Yeah. Um, so if Eagles make some noise, you know, Sunbelt can get two hosting spots. Look forward to it. Good luck to the Southern Miss Golden Eagles in the Sunbelt Conference tournament. We um, appreciate you being on the program, Luke. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Rhino, for that uh, Southern Miss to the top there. (laughs) We're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. (laughs) 
This show was previously... Special invitation to join us weekday morning, 6 to 9. Breaking news, quick shots, analysis, all right here on Super Talk Jackson 97.3. This show was previously recorded. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby. And joining us now is Dr. Andrew Wiest, a USM history professor and guest speaker for the Memorial Day ceremonies here today at the Armed Forces Museum. Dr. Wiest, thanks for joining us on Middays. Oh, thank you. And uh, thanks for leading in with Kiss, too. They were always <laughs> my favorite band growing up. Okay, so I read in your bio that uh, you're a drummer, so we're, we're kindred spirits in that respect. And uh, on your USM bio, it describes you as sings badly. Yes. Really? You sing badly? All drummers sing badly. (laughs) Except for Levon Helms and Don Hanley. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Well, I'm a big Journey fan, so Dean Castronovo is actually a pretty good vocalist as well. True. uh, Now uh, playing the drums in Journey. So in the band, the Mississippi Tornadoes. Yes, sir. What kind of music do you play? Uh, It'd be good old throwback rock and roll and blues. Okay, awesome. I bet you don't sing badly. I'm not buying that. I'll try to keep up. (laughs) You must play the drums well because it says plays the drums and sings badly. So I'm assuming that means you play the drums well. <laughs> That's awesome. But we are glad to have you. So, Thank you. what was the message uh, during the ceremony this morning? Um, my message was because I, I am blessed to teach about military history and to write about it as well. And for those people who read and consume the history of war, whether they see it in a documentary or read it in a book. It's so easy to get swept up in the majesty of some of these world-shaking events. Yeah. And to try to humanize that and bring it down to the individual level. Um, These were 19-year-old men and women, 20-year-old men and women. And in the case of Memorial Day, we're talking about men and women who never returned from those foreign fields. And to... To try to make their lives make some kind of sense. Um, uh, in the books I've written and am writing, I've had to tell the stories of many young men who did not return from war. And to to get to their story, since they can't tell it themselves, you have to interview their family members. And that's when it dawned on me that Memorial Day isn't a cross, it's not a Monday on a sunny day with a barbecue. Memorial Day for many families is every day. Uh, the the loved one they sent overseas didn't come back, and they have to wrestle with that every day. Yeah. You've written 17 books. Yes. So what inspired you, Dr. Weiss, to, to start, I guess, researching and writing about war in America? When I was young, I, I, I mentioned I, I liked the band Kiss. But the other thing I did, the, 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 there were different classes of people in high school. There were the football players yeah. and, and uh, the, the the band nerds and stuff. I was a different kind of nerd. I was a, <laughs> a military history nerd. I, I read books and 
about war. War just fascinated me because history is hard to understand, but wars seem to show you those moments, whether it's MacArthur in the Philippines or Napoleon at Austerlitz, where everything hung in the balance just in that moment. And that was so attractive to me that I wanted to learn more about war and how that and how it functioned. And as I began to write more and more about war, it, it dawned on me that the the thing we're not talking about is the 19-year-old humans uh, who were doing it. Yeah. Um, that war needed to be humanized, or actually, war can be too interesting. War can be too fun to read about. We need to remember what it does to people. Yeah. And you've written a lot about um, Vietnam. Yes. And uh, one book in particular, a bestseller, uh, The Boys of 67. Yes. Um, in teaching about the, 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 the Vietnam War, the, the first... You have a course that you teach sure on, do, right? Sure yeah, do, sure do. I saw that. That's, that's incredible. I, I didn't even know such existed in the, in the college environment, a course specifically on Vietnam, the Vietnam War. Right. When I was a, a student... Nobody taught the Vietnam War, so what I studied was World War One. Because yeah. everybody studied World War Two, so I, I, I didn't gravitate that way. And when I started teaching at USM, it dawned on me that nobody was teaching about Vietnam, so I volunteered to do it. And it's a war that I remember on television. I, I wasn't old enough for it, but my my sister's friends were, were old enough for it. And I only understood Vietnam the, the way you see it on television, an overly politicized event that people like to argue about. And then when I began to teach my Vietnam War class, it dawned on me that unlike my World War I class, I could have veterans come in and tell me what it was really like. And yeah. When I got to know those veterans, it kind of dawned on me that in the huge discussions about the Vietnam War, nobody was talking about these humans. These people who were civilians one day drafted the next and went off and did the toughest job the country ever had to offer anybody. And so that's why I wanted to write specifically about those guys, because if you're on one side of the fence, the Vietnam veterans are bad guys. If you're on the other side of the fence, they're untouchable. But what are they really? They're really scared 19-year-olds who'd much rather be at home listening to the Beatles. But yeah. they didn't have, that, didn't have that luxury. So I wanted to write about their humanity. And 55,000, right, didn't make it back. Yes. Uh, of the unit I write about, uh, they went to war with 160 men. Uh, 26 of them were killed and 105 were wounded. So they, pretty much everybody was killed or wounded in the year that they were there. Unbelievable. So how did you do the research for that? Um, I went to the veterans themselves. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to write a book about, again, how Robert E. Lee probably shouldn't have done the frontal assault at Gettysburg. <laughs> it would have been better to circle around behind them, perhaps. Those kinds of things are kind of easy to write about. The documents are there. The, it's, yeah. it's, it's easy to go find them. If you're writing about the soul of warfare, you have to go to the veterans themselves. So, uh, of those surviving veterans uh, of that unit, I interviewed 70 of them and about 30 uh, other family members as well. Because that's the only way you're going to find out what really happened is talk to the Talk to the fellows who did it. Will they talk about it openly? Will they it, get into the, the details? It, it took a second. I had formed a very close relationship with one of the veterans in the unit who came to speak to my class. Because and, and, these guys are very suspicious of... Sure. you got to remember, college kids spit on them when they came sure. home. So they're, they're suspicious of college Calling kids. Calling them baby and, killers sure. and all that stuff. 
So they had a healthy suspicion of me, but I started going to their reunions. I started buying them drinks. That's always a smart thing to do at a reunion. <laughs> and and kind of got them to, to warm up, and then they adopted me as part of the family. Once, once I proved to them I wasn't out to historically harm them, sure. that I was out to historically rescue them, then, then it became clear that, that they were... Once you got past that first talk, they were, it was an avalanche. These guys hadn't talked about their war experience in 30 years. And to finally find somebody who cared about it, once the dam broke, it just flooded. Get emotional? Very. Um, Have to. Because, again, these guys were, the, the way the, I like to put it about the Vietnam generation, that these guys did as difficult a thing as any American veteran has ever done. But every other American veteran had been... Welcome home with a pat on the back. Right. The way my uh, closest veteran friend John Young said was that we went off and we went off and sinned in the name of our nation. Killing is one of the top ten things you're not supposed to do. And they had gone off and done it. And he said every other generation when they got home had been absolved of their sins, had been given a national baptism. The, the yeah. Vietnam generation had never had that. So. When it became apparent that they were unable to, they, that they were able to unburden themselves after 30 years, it, it, again, was a torrent of emotion on their part. What's the reaction in the classroom when you're teaching about Vietnam? To obviously to kids that, that weren't weren't around then. Wow, um, it's to them it's ancient history. Yeah. To 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 folks with gray hair, it, it's it seems like a current event, but we are so far from the Vietnam War now that students just don't get it. I was closer in age to World War II than these kids are in age. My freshmen were not, were not born yet when the Twin Towers went down. So to, to, these, to these students, Vietnam is probably A, something their history class never got to, cause, yeah. um, and, and B, it's, it's so old they can't understand it. Unbelievable. So the reaction is mystification on their part but when they hear from the humans who were there doing it that that carries a universal element that all students can get because, well thank again, you for writing about their it. age yeah exactly at the time thank you for writing about it and keeping the memory alive i i like you grew up in the era i saw it unfold on television it's just surreal now that that was actually happening and we were watching that first war ever right to be so yes. so-called televised and you get i talked about it earlier you get the kia and the mia counts every single day and you only had three 30-minute news um broadcast that was it that's, that's how it. you got your news but Appreciate it, Dr. Weiss. I really, well, so I really enjoy talking to you, and, and thanks again for your work uh, to highlight uh, what happened in our military history. Thank well, thanks you, for having me. It's an honor. You got it. Dr. Andrew Weiss, USM history professor, guest speaker today for the Memorial Day ceremony at the Armed Forces Museum, has been our guest. We're stepping aside for a break. Tommy Lofton, the director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum, next. This show was previously recorded. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
Welcome back, everyone. Middays live today from the heart of Camp Shelby, Mississippi. We are at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum with the long extended Memorial Day weekend approaching. And please, folks, remember the purpose of Memorial Day, and that is to honor and recognize the men and women who served in our armed forces and made the ultimate sacrifice to protect our freedoms. And joining us now here at the Element Well Studios is Mark Prine, Colonel Mark Prine, uh, retired and now the Special Projects Officer for Camp Shelby, also President of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum Board. Colonel, always good to see you, sir. Good to see you, too. Welcome to Camp Shelby. Yes, sir. So notice we've had some ceremonies uh, going on today. Always enjoy uh, the fantastic uh, Armed Forces Band. Yes. They're great, aren't they? They're incredible. We are so excited to have them with us this today. They're and you were telling me that you don't join the military and raise your hand and say, I want to get in the band. you got to have some experience and background in that. Right. The musicians who are in 41st Army Band, like all military musicians, have to pass an audition before they even talk to them about joining service. So uh, they're much like doctors, lawyers, uh, sure, chaplains. Uh, they have to have a skill before they can get in. Yeah, absolutely. So what's planned for the Memorial Day ceremony today? We had uh, recognition uh, today of the Gold Star families that were here present, and then uh, uh, Andy Weist spoke about two Mississippians who had given uh, their lives in service, uh, and then we recognized our veteran, Gold Star veteran today was Henry Lee Brown from Jackson, who lost his life in 1967 in Vietnam. Uh, we have him featured here. He is a Silver Star recipient uh, for his service uh, during Vietnam. Wow. Able to recognize him. And that's what we try to do each uh, Veterans yeah. Day is select a Mississippian who has uh, paid the ultimate sacri sacrifice, I should say, on Memorial Day yeah. and recognize them. Yeah, absolutely. So the Armed Forces Museum, every time we come down here, uh, I am reminded of just how special this place is. So uh, tell us about the, the various things that are available to the public that should come see the Armed Forces Museum? Well, the, the great thing about the museum is it's located here on post at Camp Shelby, so there are other events that you can uh, coordinate when you come to visit with, uh, with us. Uh, we have lots of school groups that come here uh, to tour the museum, but they'll also go and look at the static equipment displays, which is modern equipment that they're using right now that mm. we have set up for them to go through and look. We have a rails-to-trails course here. Uh, we've been recently sanctioned by Scouting USA. It's a 14-mile mm. course here, so you can come and do the 14-mile hike that is required for scouting to come here. We have a driving tour now. We've marked historic locations all throughout Post, go all the way back to World War One, uh, all the way through the modern era. Hmm. Uh, we recently, and I was mentioned to you earlier, is that uh, we were able to find diagrams of where the French and British officers came here in World War One, laid out trenches for training. We've been able to relocate some of the, where those trenches are. They're now marked, and they're part of our driving tour. So was this known uh, all all along, Colonel, that these trenches and that this training facility to train World War One officers from Europe existed? We we knew about the officers coming here, and we knew about the trenches being laid out, but it was doing a kind of a deep dive to find out where the trenches were. Um, You've got to imagine uh, during World War II, this place got turned over almost completely, but yeah. we were able to find some sections of the trenches that still existed. Uh, we used some of the young folks from Youth Challenge Academy help us clear that area out. We've been able to mark it and uh, built a ramp now so you can stand on that ramp and overlook where the trenches were. Uh, it's kind of remarkable that 100 and some odd years later <laughs> that they're still out there. So I assume then the idea was to simulate what they would encounter 
in, in the war area, in yeah. the combat areas. Yes, indeed. Uh, when they came here, um, when uh, Camp Shelby was selected, it had been freshly cut over uh, by the Newman Lumber Company. So it was just wide open ground with a lot of stumps and, and rough places out there. That's pretty much what the no man's land looked like in France. Okay. So. That's incredible. So tell us about the Youth Challenge Academy. You were just mentioning something about that. I, I saw them um, in the ceremonies here just occurring a few minutes ago, so I'm walking out the door. So tell us about that. Uh, they're winding up. Uh, that's class number 58. They're winding up uh, their time here at Camp Shelby, uh, finishing up the program that they started in January with us. So graduate uh, June the 17th. We're using Temple Baptist Church west of Hattiesburg for their graduation this time. Uh, just we're really excited for them because this looks like class will be uh, have the highest percentage of students to receive a high school diploma this time. They've completed Fantastic. high step uh, and uh, GED testing, so uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed that uh, they're able to break that record. That is fantastic. Uh, talk about some of the public events you've got going on here at okay. Camp Shelby. Okay. You, well, yeah. the great thing about Camp Shelby is it's state-owned, so we're able to do some things maybe you can't do on federal installations. So we're hosting a number of events coming up. Uh, we've got the Pedal School District coming down. Going to use uh, They'll be visiting with us and uh, doing some administrative training down here. Like I said, we've got the Youth Challenge Academy graduation coming up. Uh, the American Legion will be down here in June. They have an uh, uh, annual college that they have here to where they work with their veterans officials. Uh, the VA will be down here in July on the 22nd here at the museum. They're holding a PAC Act Claims Clinic. So if you are exposed to any kind of uh, contamination overseas, specifically with the global war on terror, they'll be able to come in and help you with that. It could be here in the Grand Gallery. Uh, and, of course, we've always got field trips going on. Yeah. So uh, you think school's out, but now there's summer camps and all those kind yeah. of events coming down. So we always encourage people to come down and visit Camp Shelby uh, with a field trip. And our friends at the Special Olympics, uh, we go back decades with them and them having their fall games here. So we're looking forward to seeing them again in October. Yeah. So with respect to the field trips, Colonel, most of the children that would come through here, I'm thinking really – have not uh, been alive when this country was involved in, in serious uh, foreign wars and conflicts. What's their reaction when they go to this museum and, and see not only uh, kind of a, a closer look at these, these wars that America fought, but also Mississippi's participation in them? I think they're really um, amazed, especially when you can bring groups through and uh, you can point out people who are from their hometown. Or they know, yeah. you know, have a connection, have a connection, yeah. and they're kind of like going, "Oh, you mean this guy is from from Bay St. Louis? That's where I'm from." Yeah. Or this guy is from Jackson? That's where I'm from. Yeah. So to have them be able to tie and talk about people from Mississippi, um, we have students come through here from from various places. We talk about a young man who uh, was went to Mississippi Normal College, now Southern Miss. Yeah. And yeah, students are going, "Wait a minute, uh, he was in school <laughs> and he he dropped out of school to go." And, yes. Yeah. So when you're able to tie that to them and. You know, we're looking at younger school students now who are rolling through that were not alive when 9-11 occurred. Yeah. So that's a, a lot of, a, of an education process for them as well to understand that whole uh, global war on terror conflict that lasted so long. Do you feel like they leave here, Colonel, with um, the respect that should be given to our armed forces, the men and women who served in it in particular? I think they're very much more aware of uh of what the sacrifice is that the men and women, uh, just those who maybe went and served and came home, but especially those who, for Memorial Day, who gave their lives. Uh, when you talk to them and you're able to relate to say, well, this young man was, was 18 when, when he was killed, this young lady was 22, and you're talking to people who are pretty much the same age yeah. they are. Yeah. They, they 
really makes an impact for them. It's important. We've, we've got to continue to yep. keep that, that legacy alive, even though, again, we're fortunate we haven't had any, any serious conflicts that have pulled uh, lots of our young, young people into the military and travel abroad and, and end up giving their lives. Uh, we still need to understand that we and do. remember that. And that's what we celebrate on Memorial Day. We do. And the, the fact that many of them are understanding that most of the people that they or the people they're dealing with really since Vietnam are all volunteers, uh, that they volunteered to do this as opposed to, you know, being called to the service by their nation. They raised their right hand free. Yeah, that's true. And you mentioned um, Andy Weist. We've got Dr. Weist coming on the program uh, later on today. Look forward to talking to him. I mean, he's really a scholar about he really is. Uh, our history and war. He really is. Uh, I was at the Army War College, and, you know, when they're t- teaching out of a book that, you know, you got to go, wait a minute, I don't live far from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a really, really wonderful asset. That's pretty cool. So talk about um, – uh, the funding sources for the Armed Forces Museum, how does that work? Well, the state is very generous in being able to help us uh, with our staff. Uh, Camp Shelby is very generous in helping us with our utilities, but the maintenance that we have and changing of displays here is all done through our foundation. So we reach out to corporations, uh, individuals across the state to help us fund uh, and update our displays. We were just uh, received a very generous donation from Ingalls, so we're going to be hmm. taking the uh, – Rosie the Riveter, Miss Vera Anderson, yeah. her uh, display. We found some videotape of her in the welding competition in the 1940s. So wow. we're changing that, putting a, a screen up now so that we can highlight her and the home front effort. So cool. Um, and so we always are looking for uh, any kind of companies or individuals who would like to participate and help us maintain the, the displays here and update the displays. We're always looking for those uh, those contributions. And you serve as the president of the, the foundation board. Yes, I do. And uh, that's one of my primary jobs is to reach out to groups and individuals across the state to help them bring them into the fold here to help us fund the museum. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, once again, folks, if you haven't been here, you got to visit. Um, it, it will just blow you away how well done the exhibits are, how authentic they are, and it, it just such a it's an education. It's like years of education of history crammed into a short period of time as you walk through this place. It's so well done. Congratulations, Colonel. Thank you, sir, of course, for your service as always, and thank you uh, for having us here today. It's our pleasure. Appreciate, Appreciate it, Kurt. Thank you for coming. Yes, sir. Thank you. We're stepping aside for a break right here on Middays. We're coming right back with more from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum at the heart of Camp Shelby. Stay with us. This show was This show was previously recorded. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. (laughs) Are we promoting alcohol consumption here on the program or what? Well, sometimes you just had a a rough week. I got you. (laughs) 
So, the system had been implemented a few weeks, and this was a Unix-based system, which means you had a, a central uh, Unix server and dumb terminals connected to it. It wasn't a network. That really was not even available at the time. And it, the maker of those terminals was a company called WISE, W-Y-S-E. That's what they pretty much did. And all these terminals had, uh, much like your PCs and your laptops do today, they had a timeout feature you could set where if you there was no activity for a certain period of time, it would turn the screen off so it wouldn't burn it in. And Right. Um, CRT tubes, cathode ray tubes, not critical race theory, by the way. And so we had that set up and got a call from one of the workers at the counter. That was counter. before the days of the flying toasters screensaver. The correct. The flying toasters, very popular screensavers. Because they move, they wouldn't burn your, your, um, your tubes in there. So got a call and didn't really think about it when I was on the phone with them and said, yeah, my terminal's down here, man. I, I can't use it. And, and I'd rushed out to the store, Southwest Jackson, and and realized, oh my gosh, it's the screensaver. I didn't think about that on the phone. Drove all the way out there to help him out. Just hit the space bar. Boom! It came back. And he said, wow, it's like Lassie. It always comes home. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay, I guess so. That works. Pretty cool, though. Um, digressing a little bit. Reminiscing. So you were just telling me a couple of things on the break. Uh, first is the professor that we discussed a couple of days ago who uh, essentially accosted some students at Manhattan University in New York, uh, pardon me, Hunter University in Manhattan, that had a, a pro-life display with some literature and other materials. She just decided to get in that person's face, a couple of people actually, and pushed all the materials off the table, really acted like a tool, and uh, used many expletives in the tirade, uh, uh, again, targeting the two individuals that were just so honestly controlled and composed and humble about it, said, yeah, we're just here, you know, with our message. Well... So what happens? Somebody goes to her office, right? Yeah, the New York Post went to, uh, I believe, her apartment and was seeking comment on the now viral video of her accosting these students. Yeah. And she comes out the door with a machete and holds it to his neck, <laughs> threatens that she's going to chop him up, and then there was another video of her chasing him down the street with the machete. Oh, so we've since learned she has been terminated. Yes, she no longer has a job. There is a God. That's justice right there. So, but this is scary, isn't it? That this person's teaching impressionable college students art. Who the heck wants to take art from somebody with such a temper and an attitude? Because you know it's not just this. No. You, I showed you the photos yesterday. The Post had some photos. You can just look at that person and tell they're just an unhappy person. Oh, yeah, there's other videos that have come out now on social media of her activism inside and out of New York City. Oh, my God. She's a real piece of work. Well, again, I say, how in the world do these people get in a position where they're teaching, again, students? Share another story with us that you were just telling me about. I've seen a little bit. The river in Copiah County, the Pearl River, is eroding a hill 
that supports a grave, and there's I've seen some float. It's a photos. graveyard. It's graveyard. an old saw, cemetery located between Georgetown and Rockport in Capaya County along the Pearl River, and due to the nature of a river, the lines along the river have moved and shifted, and there's an erosion, and now there are pictures that have been shared on social media, and it's, be- it's become a bit of a conversation where at least one casket is visible on the banks of the Pearl River due to erosion. And there it appears there have been several headstones that have been lost to erosion. Uh, it doesn't seem like the cemetery has been well kept, but surely there's somebody that should be doing something. That photo, like from the perspective of being in the river, looking up at the side of the hill, showing a casket clearly hanging off the, the ledge it looks like there that's kind of eerie isn't it kind of yeah. spooky i mean it looks like it won't be long you'll have caskets floating down the river kind of what it seems well the first hour is in, is in the books here on a middays in the element well studios we're taking a break it's top of the hour. That means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. And when we return, it's Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association. Please stay with us. This show was this show was previously recorded. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Gerard and Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios. Joining us now, Melvin Gatewood, retired Army combat veteran and co-founder of Operation Continue Service. Uh, Good morning, Melvin. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you for your service, sir. Good morning, Gerard. Thank you for having me. You bet. So we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, the Ruck event Tell us, uh, tell our audience exactly what a Ruck event is. You guys just completed that, right? Yes, we. Uh, with Operation Continued Service, our motto is remembering those who have fallen while motivating those that still stand. So the Ruck that we did on Saturday in Starksville, from Starksville, Mississippi to Columbus, was considered a recovery Ruck, and that is more mental health based. Okay, so, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, Melvin. Please. No, I was just going to say, so with the recovery rug, we are <clears throat> we are wearing the backpack, and the backpack symbolizes the mental anguish and the mental issues that veterans deal with both in the military and out of the military. I have a vest that I have that it has MST, PTSD, anger, racism, depression, and anxiety, just to ma- name some of the issues. But also inside the backpack, we have bricks, uh, and we have those hmm. labeled as well. So those are what we carry during that recovery rub. 
I got you. So uh, what's the distance that you walk with those backpacks loaded down like that? On this particular one, we did 20 miles. Wow. 20 miles like that. Good grief. That's, uh, that's a lot. But so, and, and that's designed to essentially simulate the hardship and the challenges of, uh, of our veterans. Yes. Gotcha. So All right. initially, the RUC was to bring awareness of veteran suicide and mental health issues. And we also had veterans from within the community. We had assistant chief um, of police over in Starfield, Mr. Henry Stewart. He walked with us. We had another veteran that served with me in Iraq from out of uh, Clarksville, he came up to work with us, but the other individuals were members of Operation Continued Service. Gotcha. I understand. How, how long have these RUC events been going on, Melvin? Well, we did our first Memorial RUC in 2019 to remember uh, Sergeant Travis Cooper in Macon, Mississippi, where we did 22 miles from West Lyons Elementary School to the Oddfellow Cemetery in Macon, Mississippi, where he's buried. Mm, interesting. Uh, is this something that occurs across the country as well? Are there other uh, well, no, ruck events? No. Well, yeah, it's other ruck events, but yep. as for with Operation Continued Service, okay. we only are doing Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. Gotcha. understand. All right, so mental health as it pertains to our veterans. This is a serious problem that, that needs attention. Uh, tell us about what's going on there. So when I'm actually employed by the Department of Veteran Affairs, so the nonprofit is something that I do on the side. I hear from veterans daily when I call to check in on them. I hear them saying that I'm looking for outlets, I'm looking for a way to get engaged. So to stop the isolation of veterans just being in in the home and trying to get them engaged, we want to come into communities and we want to engage with them with the rooks. We're not asking anybody to do 20 miles. The 20 miles is really just to get the attention. Yeah. When we're doing the, uh, the rooks inside the communities, like I do a rook every month here in Middle Tennessee in Mount Juliet, and it might be five to three miles. So getting veterans out or family members of veterans out to come on the rucks. And while we're rucking, we're talking, hey, what's going on? Tell me uh, about how, how things have been going with you. And then you have an individual open up and they will start sharing. We are not licensed clinical professionals, but we are, we know licensed clinical professionals that we could refer the individuals to. We could uh, refer them to the uh, Wounded Warrior Project, the Department of Veteran Affairs, the Simplify America's Fund, or like what we did Saturday at the end of our RUC, we had a big resource fair where we had the Tuscaloosa VA Medical Center come over. We had the Wounded Warrior Project. They had a table. The Simplify America's Fund, they had a table. But it's also important to get those local uh, providers to come in as well where we had community counseling. And then we had some private counseling agencies, Harris Counseling Services. She came in. And then we had another individual with, uh, I think it was Safe Talk, where uh, veterans or anyone that's dealing with mental health issues, they can call in and they can talk to a, um, a professional about those issues. How big an issue is this, Melvin, this, this mental health situation within the uh, community of veterans? It's very serious. Uh, at one point in time, we heard 22 a day. I think that 
We, um, the last time that I got the data on it, I think it was uh, a little under around 17, but one is too many. Sure. Wow. I've known uh, of individuals, even in the area where we were working, that we have had um, veteran suicides there. I've had personal people who I've served with who I know we have lost to uh, loss of suicide. So we just want veterans to know that we are here for them. And if we are out, we're doing the rooks. And also one of the other things that we do with our organization is do Veterans Coffee Social. We had the opportunity to go over to the Center for American Veterans there on Friday uh, at Mississippi State and host uh, our second Veteran Coffee Social there, where we have veterans come in, get coffee, chat with other veterans, and also we have resource table where they can pick up resources um, as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. So you guys are trying to, I guess, get the word out and make it known that these these veterans that are, are suffering from a depression or other just uh, mental health issues, that there are resources available to work with them, to counsel them, and and, uh, and, and get them in the right place so they don't take their own lives. Yes, most definitely, especially with uh, underserved uh, areas and uh, areas that have limited access. So we are very passionate about those small towns. Yeah. Melvin, what what typically is the is the cause or the reason why a veteran would get to that point, such that they would uh, even consider taking their own life? What what is uh, what is it unique about? Is it something they encountered while in combat, in, in particular, where they witnessed firsthand these atrocities? I know you you ter- you too, sir, are a combat veteran. Yeah, I'm a combat veteran and I'm a Purple Heart recipient. Every case um, differ. Um, it can be something that happened overseas that they just haven't gotten over and they haven't processed it. Or it could just be your daily interactions as for financial issues. Yeah. It can be um, the anxiety of um, having um, to be a father, having to be a husband, and you're not making ends meet. Um, I think that the big picture of what they experience in Iraq or in combat, that does play a, a major part on it as well, especially with having survival remorse. Okay, survival remorse. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but of course, that mm-hmm. I, I got to believe that's just hard to uh, to reconcile and come to grips with if you've had any situation like that. Are are you? Aware of any individuals that got very close to that point, but were able to get uh, proper clinical treatment and and help to avoid. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you yes, know, you know the because, treatment uh, works, and it, it's just a matter of getting them connected to it. Yes, I know that the treatment works, and uh, and the thing is about about this uh, rough march that we did. Someone asked me. They said, "Well, Melvin, how would you gauge the uh, the success of your rough?" I said, "I." I felt that it was successful before we even stepped off because I had a veteran that came to me a couple of days before we um, actually did the rug and said, I heard about what you all was doing. I had to go leave my unit and I had to go down to Jackson to seek help during a drill weekend. And I know what the facility did for me. I know what the program did for me. So that said a lot uh, for me. 
uh, to hear. And it says a lot for our Department of Veteran Affairs, even the one there in Jackson, Mississippi, GV Sunny Montgomery VA, where I was actually employed with at one point in time as well. So we're doing excellent things to help veterans. We just need to let them know that we are here. So I feel that with our organization going there to meet veterans where they are, especially in those small towns, that's very important. And there's a lot of stigma related to mental health. So I want people to know that you're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. And it's okay to seek help. Yeah, excellent guidance and wisdom there. Melvin, thanks so much for joining us here on Middays. Uh, fascinating learning about this. And, and uh, most importantly, uh, once again, sir, thank you for your service and your sacrifice uh, to our nation on behalf of the entire nation. Thank you. Appreciate it, Melvin. Thank you. We'll step aside for a break right here on Middays. we got got uh, three segments left in this hour, and then we've got Ricky Matthews coming up with Super Talk Outdoors. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Super Talk Mississippi Middays in the Element Wealth Studios. Dave Hughes here. And joining us in the studio, and I have been informed that I did not massacre his last name. So I'm very happy to hear that, but I'm going to try to do it even better this time. Uh, we've got author Raphael Mongual. Perfect. Yes! I'm going home, Rhino. I'm done. That's my accomplishment for the day. Uh, Raphael, you're here with the uh, uh, to speak at a Mississippi Center for Public Policy event uh, today, and you're an author of a book. And I, number one, I love the name because it doesn't come across spoken word. You have to see it with the parentheses around yes. the in yes. for criminal injustice. Uh, tell us a little bit. Number one, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm born and raised in New York City, Brooklyn, um, and that's really relevant to the work I do today because, you know, New York was not always the, the kind of big, safe city that it, you know, became in the, the early aughts and mid-2000s, you know, and still is by and large today, although we've seen a deterioration. Yeah, but when I was going into kindergarten, we had 2,262 murders that year. Um, we had 292 murders in 2017. So, you know... I have lived my life mostly in a city that completely transformed itself. And I think, you know, in my opinion, constitutes the single biggest achievement in urban American history. Um, and, you know, watching that was, I think, really influential in terms of developing my own appreciation for the importance of public safety and what it can do to transform an economy. I mean, in New York City, particularly the outer boroughs, the you know, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens – transformed in ways that it is now unrecognizable compared to, you know, the pictures. I mean, I don't know how old your sort of median listener is, but there was this interesting moment during the 1977 World Series 
where Howard Cosell is announcing one of the games. And, you know, as, as, as they do, the camera zooms out from Yankee Stadium and kind of gives, you know, a little picture of the landscape. And all you saw were these fires burning all over the Bronx. And he has this really famous line where he says, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Uh, and it becomes this sort of iconic moment in New York's history where, you know, it was this moment of embarrassment where the city was, you know, just looked like a hellscape, literally, you know, fire and brimstone. And, um, you know, it was not weird to have whole city blocks where maybe there was one standing structure and all of that changed in seemingly an instant and it was because we got one really important thing right and that was public safety well and you know number one uh i i think we also fall into the trap talking about the bronx is burning but that was very obvious it was on tv but we fall into the trap of identifying the worst possible aspects of whatever we're considering or talking about and pretending that's the entirety of it. New York still has problems. Sure. They still have a lot of issues. Everybody has a lot of issues. But it's more to it than that. And that stat you gave me about the the, the murders, that that's incredible. Yeah. How much has dropped. But that's that leads into what you were saying. The one thing that you got right in New York that happened there that turned everything around economically, societally, culturally, what was it? It was public safety. I mean, we were able to figure out a way to experiment with both policing and criminal justice policy. Um, And those experiments basically prioritized putting resources in the highest crime enclaves of New York City and signaling to the public in those places that, hey, someone's in charge here. We're going to take this seriously. We're going to get things under control. We are not going to suffer repeat offenders to the degree that we have been throughout the 1970s and 80s. And we're going to start to take these punks off the street for really long periods of time. And what that did, I think much to the surprise of people even making these policy choices, was it gave these communities room to breathe, room to grow. And as crime started to come down, it made those places more attractive to economic investment, to business development, to real estate development. You know, New York City became a city was a city where parents were afraid to send their kids to NYU or Columbia, you know, because, hey, well, you know, are they going to they gonna ride the subway? Are they going to get mugged in the street to a place where it's like, OK, no, I'll happily send my kid there. And then, you know, it sort of transformed into a city where when you graduated from NYU or Columbia, it wasn't, OK, I'm going to move to L.A. or, you know, Chicago or some other part of the country. It was like, no, I'm actually going to stay here. And, you know, that, again, just, you know, it snowballed. And this, you know, sort of positive uh, cycle of reinforcement just kind of took off. And, you know, New York became just the sort of place where you could, as I did when I was in college, you know, leave a bar at 3 a.m., walk 20 blocks with a $100 bill taped to your forehead and be fine. Um, and that that just you know um, was 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 I think unpredicted, and the benefits were just well beyond what anyone expected. And and that's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing the kind of pushback against the direction that the city is moving in now. Because as I mentioned, we got down to 292 homicides in 2017, but we're now approaching the 500 mark again. Um, you know, after seeing a nearly 50 percent increase in homicides in 2020, and then another increase in 2021. And I think that's something that lots of cities around the country are dealing with. Is you know, I think in a lot of ways, the United States is a victim of its own success because the New York formula was kind of tried in the rest of the country and you know you saw crime declines kind of you know uh, 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 happen in, in big cities across the nation but as crime goes down i think you start to see a level of in, uh, of of you know uncomfortableness with with the incongruity between the, a tough system and safe streets and so as that level of discomfort grows 
you know, people start to push back on the kind of robust systems that provided that initial level of safety to begin with. And you start to roll those things back through various reform efforts. And that rollback can then make jurisdictions increasingly more vulnerable to exactly the kind of crimes. And so, you know, at the beginning of my book, I, I quote this crime historian, Eric Monkinen, who um, you know, said back in the 1960s that the crime would, would follow a sort of cyclical pattern where you would have really low levels of crime, uh, which meant that, you know, public safety wasn't really taken seriously. And that lack of seriousness would create the conditions for crime to rise. As crime rose and eventually got out of control, people would have a kind of draconian response to it. And that those uh, responses would then cause crime to go down and then set the stage for the next cycle to repeat itself. And so I think that's kind of where we are um, Historically speaking, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, crime wasn't, you know, a huge problem at the early outset. You know, the systems weren't really in place. In the mid-1960s, it starts to tick up as a result, gets out of control in the 70s and 80s and 90s. We say, oh, my goodness, we we really have to do something about this. And, you know, uh, there's these huge investments in policing and criminal justice over the course of the uh, you know late 80s, early 1990s. That then leads things to get brought under control. And then the reform movement, you know, uh, kind of refound its voice. And, um, you know, we're doing it all over again. So my hope is that, you know, by, by writing about these issues and you know, um, highlighting that history, the pendulum won't swing as far past the point of equilibrium this time around as it did the last time. So that, you know, as history kind of repeats itself, we we learn faster and um, don't make as big a mistake. Well, I'm sure you heard me talking in the segment before you came in here about the incident on the subway in New York yep. where the guy got choked. Forty-four times he had been arrested. That's right. And released again. I, you had 44 chances to where this wouldn't have had to happen. Yeah. Uh, but but we didn't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, what we often see in terms of, you know, crime, in, in especially in urban enclaves, is that, you know, there is an incongruity between reality and the narrative. And the narrative is that we sort of systematically deny second chances in this country. In fact, last month was second chance month in the United States. Um, but, you know, the reality is that people are given plenty of chances. And... You know, one question that I think we have to be more comfortable asking ourselves as a society is, are we actually helping offenders who we continue to release out into the public? And are we actually helping the communities that they're going to spend their time in? I mean, I don't think, at least with hindsight, that anyone can look at what happened on the subway and say, okay, this person who's been arrested 44 times is clearly mentally ill in a very serious way and obviously can't function within society. Was he really better off where he was roaming the subways? Asking for food, having episodes, you know, uh, getting himself into situations in which, you know, he lost control and eventually created enough fear for someone to intervene in that kind of violent way. I mean, that's not the world I want to live in. You know, we have been sort of duped as a society into believing that compassion requires um, this kind of leniency. Um, and, and you, the only way that that argument kind of you know, uh, gains popular purchase is by ignoring the potential downside risks that are associated with that project, and not just the risk to the broader community, which is often how we frame this, and those are important, but also the risks to the individuals themselves. Um, you know, a lot of times these offenders will also become victims by virtue of the circumstances in which they live and how they carry themselves. That's a perfect example what happened here, but I think that part, of, and we've gotten caught up in this again, we do, it's just like everything else, it's cyclical. Uh, we have gotten caught up in this this 
compassionate kabuki theater to where we have now twisted things around to where somebody thinks it's actually a decent argument to look you in the face and go, you don't understand, we should have given him a 45th chance. (laughs) Right, right. And that makes sense to some people. Yeah, what do they say about the definition of insanity, right? Same thing, over and over and over and over, or at least 45 times in this particular case, which is part of the problem. Can you hang on through the break? I sure can. Fantastic. We are talking to Raphael Mongual. Perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm trying to keep my record off, Rhino. Uh, author of Criminal Injustice, speaking at a Mississippi Center for Public Policy event um, in about an hour, yeah. actually. we got to get you out of here pretty quick because of traffic, if nothing else, so you can get there. I'm sure it's nothing close to New York traffic, so I'll be all right. Well, and you got Doug driving. That's so, right. Yeah, just, just <laughs> buckle the seatbelt. Yeah, just to make sure he stays on the left side of the road. Mm-hmm. Off the left side that's of the road. A, that, that's a lot of... <laughs> Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. We have a very welcoming stance here on Middays, live in the Element Well Studios. You know, I've heard so many people do this song, and I'm sorry, that's Frank's song, Everybody Needs to Leave It Alone. Indeed. It's a great song, but I'm a big Rat Pack fan to begin with. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Frank, you leave Frank alone. That, that's Frank's. That will be his for all eternity. Welcome back. We've got in studio with us now Raphael Mongual, uh, author. I'm not even commenting on it anymore. I think I've got it now. <laughs> author of Criminal Injustice. And we're, we're talking about, and we've got a text on the C Spire text line from uh, Rick down in Gulfport who says there's areas in East Paris where the French police don't go. It was much the same when I lived there 50 years ago. New Orleans, you know about. New York seems safer than either of those now. It is. But we have a tendency to focus on the 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 sensational stories and the big things and, and try to make that, in our mind, be the entire situation. And it's not the case in New York. No, it's not. And, you know, one of the things that, is really important to do, and it's a mistake that we often make, and even I'm guilty of it sometimes, is when we talk about crime and public safety, we talk about it in aggregate terms. We talk about crime in New York, crime in Louisiana, crime in New Orleans, crime in Philadelphia, when the reality is is that you know we don't experience crime or really anything else in the aggregate, right? I mean, you know, how safe you are is highly dependent on specifically where you are and what time it is, um, and 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 so it's actually much more um, enlightening to look at crime statistics not at the city level and not even really at the neighborhood level, but really at the street level. If you spend any time in any major city, you know that within the scope of a couple of blocks, the public safety picture can change radically. Right? There are parts of every city where you would be well advised not to go at all, and the majority of the city is going to be safe. And so, you know, the Manhattan Institute um, uh, actually did an interesting study on crime concentration in New York City uh, that we published in 2021 that looked at um, the level of concentration at the street segment level. So a street segment, if you're just imagining a four-sided city block, would be corner to corner, both sidewalks is one street segment. New York City has 82,000 of those approximately. About 3.5% of the street segments see 50% of all the violent crime. About 5% of the street segments see 50% of all the crime. And about 1% of the street segments see 25% of the crime. Whereas 40% of the street segments don't see any crime at all in a given year. And so 
you know, one of the things that we have to be really careful about when we talk about crime at the city level is, you know, the fact that we are often um, kind of go- rolling over the fact that crime is a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon geographically. It only affects a very, very small slice of the country. Um, and it's also very hyper-concentrated demographically. So again, you know, drawing on my, my, my knowledge in New York City, every single year for which we have data, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims in our city are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are males. Now, I can assure you that black and Hispanic males don't constitute anywhere close to 95% of our population. In 2021, it was 97% of shooting victims. So, you know, we have to be very, very careful about how we talk about crime. There is no American crime problem. There is no, you know, Mississippi crime problem. There is no Jackson crime problem. There is a crime problem in specific places within jurisdictions at specific times. And that's, I think, a, a much more elevated way of approaching the problem that's going to be, um, you know, much more enlightening as to the, the discussion about what solutions are going to work, because solutions have to be narrowly tailored to the scope of the problem. And one of the things that I don't think Americans quite fully appreciate is just that particular phenomenon. I mean, you know, across the country, about 50% of homicides will occur in about 2% of U.S. counties, and more than half of U.S. counties are not going to see any homicides uh, in a given year. And within those counties, you know, the, the crime problem is even more concentrated still. We have to find a solution for this, and I think perception plays a part in that, definitely, because because we have lost sight of the ability to take uh, kind of kind of a, a, a gut reaction to things, a gut knowledge, uh, and apply it to the overall problem. We want to talk in these big sweeping terms, as you said, but I'm sorry. There are some areas of wherever you're at, whatever county you're at in Mississippi, whatever city you're in, there's some part of it you wouldn't let your wife walk down the sidewalk by themselves. There's others you wouldn't have a problem, period. That's just the way it works. But we don't want to talk about that in that fashion because, well, it's insensitive. It's insensitive and it's, you know, it's nuanced and nuance, of course, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It it makes the conversation more difficult to have. I mean, I think one of the main reasons there's resistance um, to, you know, kind of acknowledging this reality of crime concentration, both geographic and demographic, is that a lot of the crime debate is framed around the idea that we should be most concerned with the racial disparities in our criminal justice enforcement statistics. You know, we are told that, you know, the elevated rate at which certain communities are arrested, um, involved in stops and frisks, are incarcerated, that this is prima facie evidence of discrimination on the part of the system, right? Systemic racism, systemic, dis, you know, uh, discrimination. These disparities, uh, you know, are the problems that the criminal justice reform movement of today are really kind of geared toward addressing. And, you know, one of the things that I, I don't think that really grapples with is this crime concentration phenomenon, because if you agree that the resources that we um, invest to address crime, that those resources should be concentrated where the problem is most acute, well, then you have to accept the disparities are going to arise from that, right? Again, if you're talking about New York City, where 97% of shooting victims two years ago were black or Hispanic males, would it be fair to deploy as many resources to very low crime, you know, white communities uh, than you do to very high crime minority communities? And, you know, I'm old, I'm not, I'm still a young man, but I'm old enough to remember we're one of the sort of most, uh, um, 
you know, intense critiques of policing as an institution was that it wasn't responsive enough to crime in minority communities. I mean, I don't know how many uh, uh, old school hip hop fans are listening, but there's a group called Public Enemy, and one of their most famous songs, and uh, I think it was the late '80s, um, uh, was 911 is a joke," and and the idea was that you know the police just would take their time responding to crime in in you know low income minority communities, and this kind of reflected uh, the sort of subtle racism of that institution back then. But now we live in a very different world in which resources are diverted to the places that need the most. And now we're told that the outgrowth of that phenomenon is evidence of racism still. And so it's kind of, you know, uh, you, you can't win and can only lose. Um, you know, but, but the other thing that the systemic racism critique, which is very, very powerful for people, that it gets wrong is that it's only looking at enforcement statistics as if that's the only output of the criminal justice system. But when the criminal justice system works, right, when police do their job well, when we incarcerate the right people, crime goes down. And what they never look at is who enjoys the benefits that are associated with those crime declines. And it turns out that those disparities are just as stark and just as persistent. And so I, I ask people often this rhetorical question, why on earth would a system allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit those communities when the system achieves its stated ends? Ask any police chief in the country, what is it that you want to achieve? How do you define success? They say, well, I want to control crime. I want to suppress crime. Ask any law and order prosecutor the same thing. What, you know, what motivates you to do that? Well, I want to, you know, I want to provide public safety. Same thing with corrections officials. Well, at this point in the game, we know who suffers the most from the crime problem, which means we know who's going to benefit the most from that problem's reduction. And yet no one really addresses that incongruity. Well, and uh, they probably won't, let's be honest, unless their hand is forced. That's the way it works. And that's everybody. This is across the board. Uh, And this is a problem that's not going to go away. It has to be addressed. But at the same time, this is something that I have said many times. Uh, it's, it's something I keep falling back on because I have identified this as one of our root problems, and I think it definitely applies to this area. We have gotten so process-oriented and focused instead of result-oriented and oriented and focused. We no longer set a goal, that's what we want to achieve, and then do what we have to do to get there. No, Goal is almost secondary because we want to make sure we do this process this way. I don't care. Make crime go down. Let's, let's, let's start with that instead of focusing on making sure we do things the right way. And then hopefully, hopefully things will get better. We've got to quit focusing on the process and start focusing on getting some results. Well, if you reorient the inquiry around results, it instills a sense of accountability that a lot of people are just uncomfortable with because now they have something to answer for. And that was actually the really great innovation um, of of crime control efforts in New York City in, in the early 1990s was, you know, Bill Bratton came into New York City and, and actually said, we are going to get crime under control, which immediately put himself behind the eight ball because what happens if it doesn't happen? Oh, and by the way, crime has been going up since the late 1960s in that city, and no one's been able to get it under control. And he actually said, no, this is going to be the standard against which I will be measured. And that really put him out on a limb. And he showed that actually, if you motivate people around that result, that you can actually really motivate them uh, in important ways and, and produce benefits that were just, again, incredible. 
Personal accountability and working towards a good result to benefit the people that need it the most. This is crazy talk, Revy. I, I, I don't even know what to do with you at this point. Uh, you make way too much sense to be floating around loose. Luckily, we've, we've got Douglas out there. He's yeah, good man and yeah. good man out there. And yeah. obviously, you are as well. You're speaking today uh, again in about 40 minutes. So we got to okay. get you out of here, or I would keep you around for another hour. Uh, Rafael Mangual, author of Criminal Injustice. I have enjoyed talking to you. And likewise. Next time you're in this area, swing back by. I will. Fantastic. We will continue on Middays live in the Element Wealth Studios right after this. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi live today from the mississippi armed forces museum we're here for memorial day of course and we welcome now to the element wealth studios mayor toby barker the mayor of hattiesburg mayor good to see you sir i think we just found you out in the hall said come on on and talk to Uh, they did but i'm (laughs) glad to talk to you again yes sir so uh first this uh, facility here, not not too far south of uh, the great hub city of Hattiesburg, is fantastic, isn't it? We have a great military community, and, and the Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby, Mississippi's Armed Forces Museum, really is the cornerstone of that. Um, Camp Shelby's been over here over 100, 100 years. It's 136,000 acres. People from all over the country, and, and as we found out today, all over the world, yeah. come and train here, and uh, and it's certainly a part of our community. But it's unbelievable in this museum, which showcases Mississippians specifically who uh, served America in the armed forces, is so well done. T- tell me, and the, and the museum staff here did a great job of telling those stories. And, and it, it, it's not uh, static. It always changes. I remember when I was in the House, uh, Representative Mac Huddleston from Pontotoc came through here one day and saw a photograph of him flying his helicopter. And then the, <laughs> the, the, the museum found out about that and, and did a whole display out there of, of a model of his helicopter uh, to honor him. And, and we just uh, – they really are always listening, always looking for ways to tell Mississippi's story. It's totally incredible, no doubt about it. Um, so we have got a lot of stuff going on in the state. It's election year. Any any thoughts you wanted to share with us on that? Um, well, any time you have state and local elections, uh, it, it, it always brings an interesting dynamic, particularly when you have party primaries in August <laughs> and uh, all, all the the activity that goes along with that. But I think the state's headed in a really good direction right now, and certainly with the, the accomplishments of this last legislative session, uh, excited for Lieutenant Governor Hoseman's leadership and, and kind of what steps we'll take going forward. Yeah, that uh, seems to be what likely uh, will be the most contentious primary, I think, uh, certainly from a Republican perspective, is the race for Lieutenant Governor. We'll see where all that lands. Primaries uh, after Memorial Day, you feel like, are really going to shift into high gear as we approach uh, the August uh, primary election day. And, of course, that's being overlaid with so much news 
in the national elections with uh, candidates for president announcing uh, this week as well. And so we kind of have a, a double dose of politics right now for the next a couple of years. But talk about uh, your great city of Hattiesburg. How are things going there? Well, I think when we start in the first week of March, it's, it's a dead sprint to, the, to Memorial Day <laughs> with all the activities going on. And whether it's you know, Live at Five or whether it's uh, the great athletic programs at Southern Miss and William Carey, both of whom are doing incredibly well in baseball right now. William Carey is the AI World Series. Yep. Uh, Southern Miss is in the semifinals of the Sun Belt Tournament in Montgomery. And uh, we're just really grateful to have such a dynamic community with so much going on. And it really, to, to put an exclamation point on this sort of spring season is our Memorial Day ceremony that we're going to have this coming Monday at Veterans Park at 10 a.m. And, um, you know, Camp Shelby and Armed Forces Museum added this ceremony for Friday. And, and it really, it's, it's a great end of the spring. Uh, and, and I really hope that people in whatever community they're in will take time to find some sort of personal or collective reflection to really understand and give thanks for those uh, who did pay the full price, who did make the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talked not so long ago when we were down. Uh, how are you doing financially? How how are uh, tax diversions and revenues going? It's always something you got to pay attention to. Uh, we we wait for the uh, number from the Department of Revenue every uh, <laughs> every fifteenth of the month, and uh, luckily Hattiesburg I think has set sales tax records twenty six of the last thirty one months. Wow, and. Um, Along with that comes, of course, you know, affordability and inflation, especially when we bid things out. Uh, we opened a bid yesterday, and it actually, for the first time, came in underbid for the <laughs> for the first time in a couple of years. Um, but it really is a, a great time to be here. There's so much going on with downtown. We uh, are one of our main retailers, uh, the Lucky Rabbit, opened their expansion last weekend, and I know they attract folks from all over the state and all over the Gulf South. And and so, um, economy is doing well in Hattiesburg. Look forward to what's coming next. Yeah. Anything in particular? you'd like to see our state government address in the next session where we're going to have uh, fruit basket turnover, so to speak, with uh, perhaps a, a new new government. Lot, lots of new reps, maybe, new senators, lots of incumbents returning, but we start a new term. That's the main thing. I think the one thing that the legislature is going to have to address going forward is, is state retirement. Yeah, um, we agree. We have we, we can't continue to raise employer contributions. And if you ask any mayor, any board, of su any supervisor, on a county board, any superintendent, the biggest fiscal liability for us is the this employer contribution going from 17, uh, you know, over 17 percent to over potentially 22 percent, which is a, for us a 28 percent increase in our in our state retirement cost. Right. Uh, for Hattiesburg, it means 1.5 million with our current employee uh, load, and and for school districts and counties, it's just the same. And so. There are going to have to be some hard decisions made, and I, and I think that we have a legislature that has the political will to do so. I appreciate you bringing it up, Mayor, because I bring it up regularly on the program. The the uh, candidates don't seem to want to talk about of course this not. issue. It's not a very popular issue. It's very thorny, very sensitive, very controversial, and there are no easy answers to it as well. Mayor, good to see you, sir. Thanks for stopping by today. Hey, thanks a lot, and again, hope everyone finds a place to celebrate on Memorial Day. Yes, sir, you got it. We're stepping aside for a break right here on Middays. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. When we come back, Colonel Lee Henry, the commander of Camp Shelby. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.